If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Joshua this morning, chapter 13. We'll be reading various bits and pieces of chapter 13 all the way through chapter 21. Last week, what we we did was we talked about the fact that God has made promises and we, we tried to sort of inspect how it is that we should respond to many of those promises. Certainly the first and foremost way that we respond is by faith and in trust, but what we were trying to press forward is that it's not just believing, it's also at times his word calling for action, that sometimes showing trust and showing faith in God's word is actually moving in work and doing the things that he calls us to, that those actions then have meaning and that we can gain courage through the fact that God has promised certain things to us. Today, as we come to chapter 13, what we're going to do is kind of take a step back from that. And instead of simply talking about how we are to respond, ask a somewhat more basic question. What does it even mean that we have a God who makes promises? What does it mean to have a God who both makes promises and then turns around and keeps promises. What does this tell us about God? What other God works like this? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, we read these words. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there, for it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer. Save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning And from ancient times, those things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. What other God is like this? Isaiah declares there is no other God like this. There is no God who can tell you the beginning from the end. And and lest we be deceived, this isn't a biff type situation where he gets the sports almanac and back to the future, right? And he's able to make everybody seen that movie. Everybody, he makes all the bets and he gets all the money, not because he's making the future happen, but simply because that almanac is telling him the future that will happen. That is not what God is. God is not looking into an almanac to tell him what's going to happen. He's not looking into a fortune teller's orb to see the cloudy future clarified before him. Rather, what God is doing is very clear. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God doesn't just tell us what the future is. That's not what makes him God. Prophets can do that. God makes the future happen. This is part and parcel of what it makes him God. What is going to be compared to a God that does that? That is the definition of who he is. He is the one who makes all things happen. And certainly promises are part of that. God makes promises and then brings them to fruition. It is part of who God is. As we come to these chapters, we realize that Making promises and keeping promises is really the theme of the book of Joshua. And in that sense, it 
It provides a wonderful sequel to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was, God can be trusted. God's promises will come to fruition. He will make them happen. And then the book of Joshua shows that they do actually come to fruition. It is the keeping of promises. The end of our selection today, in the end of chapter 21, the last three verses from 43 to 45 read like this. Thus says the Lord, who gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. He is a God who makes promises, and he is a God who keeps promises. So as we come to these chapters today, let us look carefully at them and see if we can find out something about a God who is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. If you will, flip back to Joshua chapter 13, and let us read the first seven verses. Now, Joshua was old, and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, the regions of the Philistines, and those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim, in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and in Merah that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrephoth Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, only Allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. We learn, I believe, not just from this passage, and we will cover several others, but we learn five things at the very least about what God is from the fact that he is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. First, God is a pioneering God. God is a pioneering God. It doesn't come through fully in this passage, but he says very clearly, only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Well, what inheritance is that? What inheritance are they getting here? An inheritance provides the idea that this is not something new that is happening, but it's something that was planned beforehand. This indeed is an inheritance. It's the inheritance of Abraham. It is the fact that God has spoken to Abraham that he will give him the land. Remember, Abraham was in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. Abraham did not stand in the land of Ur and look up at God and say, God, you know what I could really use? I could use a nice view of the Mediterranean and maybe some mountains. And if you could throw in a really, really salty lake, that would be awesome as well. And uh, if you could do all this for us, give me like a kind of a deserty place in the south and north can be kind of open and a little bit rocky. That'd be great. If, you, if there's a place like that, that's what I could use. Please give me that land. 
That's not what happens. God does not respond to Abraham. Abraham responds to God. God is the forerunner. God is the pioneer. Even the people, when they were in Egypt, they cried out to God. It doesn't say that they cried out to God. It says that they cried out and the Lord heard. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God acted. The same God who had said that all of that was going to happen in the first place. God is the one who pioneers. He does not react. He is always innovating and he is the one who takes the initiative. Very famously, Dick Fosberg was the first man who approached a high jump and decided to throw his back over it instead of his leg. In doing so, he was a pioneer. Everyone who came after him was a reactionary. They followed him. They did what he did, and they might have done it better than he did, but they were reacting to him. He was the one who blazed the trail. So it is with our God. We might react to God. We might provide actions of faith, take up, as Joshua would, the arms of war. But it is God who blazes the trail for us. This is exactly what we find when even when we are supposed to pray, as we are talking through the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, 7 through 8, Jesus warns us against praying like the pagans do. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Well, okay, so why should we not do that? Why, why shouldn't we just heap up empty phrases before God? Jesus' response to that isn't because that's not helpful. God just wants nice, pithy, short statements of what you need, okay? You got to treat them like a drive through You're not up there, like, talking through a whole bunch. You say, I want a Coke and some fries and a hamburger, right? You just make it short and pithy and get on with it. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't take up God's time with all your elaborate language. That's not what he's getting at. Rather, verse 8 is actually a fairly surprising conclusion. He says you're not to do that for your father knows what you need before you ask him. He is not simply responding to you. He knows already. Prayer is not ever informing God of what you need as though he was sitting on his throne unaware of every single need that you have recognized and none of those that you haven't. God knows all of it. Before we even thought to ask for the Spirit, the Spirit was provided for us. Before we even thought to ask for salvation from our sins and from the darkness that we sat in, God had to show up and say, you know you are sitting in sin and darkness. God is the one who has come to us. God is the one who makes things known to us. That's why this is called revelation. He is not responding to our crisis. He is already making a way even before that crisis happened. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It was before. 
you were ever made, before God put a speck of dust into existence, before a photon came shooting out into existence from his declaration of let there be light, before any of that happened, before the world was founded, he had already provided for you. He had already known what you needed. He is a pioneering God. Secondly, God is a providing God. Notice what he says in verse 6. He talks about all of these regions that are left and he tells Joshua, don't worry, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. All of those lands that are left, you don't need to worry because I will be the one who works my good pleasure out. There's a famous argument from history about the creation of our world that runs from a man named Paley about a watch. So if you were to walk through the woods and you were to suddenly come upon a watch there in the woods, the question is, what would you make of that watch? Would you assume that that watch was the product of time and chance of leaves falling and rocks protruding and branches kind of coming down and they would align in such a way that poof, over the course of millions of years, out would pop a watch. And Paley's argument was, of course, that's silly. You wouldn't ever suspect that. What you've seen there is the fact that God or a maker, a creator, has put together these elements in such a way that they have a purpose, that they have a reason. And and that's the same thing that we can see all around us. We know that there is an intricate way in which our bodies are put together, which is more intricate than any watch could ever be. And his argument was, you know then that it's not a product of chance and accident. Whatever the positives and negatives of that argument are, we need to be careful because there are plenty of people who buy into the fact that God is a watchmaker. They look at this universe and there are plenty of, especially scientists, who will look at this universe and say, okay, we've got physical laws that govern our universe and there are physical things that have to happen and one domino falls into the next and it falls down and it falls down and from the beginning of time, if you wound it up, there could have been billions of chance particle interactions, but it makes sense that it led to us. And they would say, well, God is the one maybe that wound the clock up. But now it's just playing out. And God is a watchmaker in the sense that God is simply up there watching his universe play out, watching what happens. Our founding fathers were rich on this kind of language, and it's not Christian. They were deists. They weren't Christians. Not all of them, but a good portion of them. When they talk about providence, what they meant by providence was not that God was interacting with his creation, but because he was the one that wound it up, it was a substitute for, I don't know, Greek fate. This is not what we have. Our God is a providing God. He doesn't just wind up the universe as an experiment and then let it go out. But he is always condescending to us to help us. He doesn't just come to Joshua and say, Joshua, go take the promised land. He says, Joshua, you can take the promised land because I will be with you. It's not just the fact that he turns to Joshua now, even in his old age, and says, I myself will drive them out. Even back in chapter 10, in verse 42, we have this. Joshua captured all. All these kings, this long list of kings that Joshua has destroyed, he captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Joshua conquered. Joshua destroyed because God worked with him. God is always condescending to provide for his people. 
He is always here to help his people. Every single page of Scripture talks to this. Listen, the fact that it's Scripture declares this. He is revealing himself. He is providing words for us to understand, to know who he is and how he has acted. And this is one of the main reasons why you should be incredibly skeptical of any man who gets up in front of you and continues to talk on end and on end and on end about the practicality of the Bible only and gives you eight ways to a healthier marriage or five ways to have career success or three things God wants you to know about your finances. Listen, the the Bible is an immensely, immensely practical book. Make no doubt about it. And there are entire sections of Scripture that are given over to that practical application. And under no circumstances are you ever to think that God doesn't have specific directives for how you are to handle your finances, how you are to handle your career, how you are to handle your parenting, how you are to handle your marriage, how you are to handle your auto fixes. Everything comes under God's direction. And His direction is immensely practical. But this is not a self-help book. This is not a book where God looks down from heaven and says, now, here are some more practical ways for you to live. Our God does do that, but our God is always in it with us. He is always working with us. He is always working hard to help us in all things. He is providing for us. He doesn't just tell us, be holy, but he gives us a spirit of holiness to help us in that. He doesn't just tell us, repent and be right with me, but he gives us hearts that long to repent and be right with him. He doesn't just say, go out and win the kingdom of God. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and I will provide all those other things. Our God is a providing God. And as much as we need to know how we are to act, we also need to know that God has first acted and that he continues to provide for us even today. In 1 John 4.10, we read, And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us. He provides for us. He gave to us. He is a providing God. Third, God is a powerful God. God is a powerful God. Some of you laughed, and it is funny that the narrator begins chapter 13 by noting that Joshua is now old and advanced in years, and the Lord shows up and says, you're old and advanced in years. Just so you get the point, Joshua's real old, okay? He's got a number of years behind him. His best years are behind him, and he is now, as he will talk about in the future, going to go the way of the earth. This is not no new news to him, and it's not new news for the Israelite that they are going to lose a leader. Moses has already gone the ways of the earth. He has already been dust who returned to dust. All the more important that God then turns around and says, I will do what I have said I will do. What Joshua is incapable of doing because of his weakness in the flesh, God will do because he is powerful beyond imagination. It's interesting when you read through the prophets, specifically Isaiah that we'll be looking at here in a second, that the people are chided for wanting the power of horses and chariots. 
So the people of Israel are being threatened and the king's looking around and he knows that there's a great war that's coming to him and he knows that Israel doesn't have the power to withstand that war. And so he looks to other nations that are, on the face of it, mightier than Israel who can provide help to them, military help, financial help. And he looks to Egypt and he says, Egypt, will you come and help me? And Isaiah 30, the first three verses say this. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt? Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Isaiah 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because there are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. God looks at this and he says, you are running to men. You are trusting in the things of men and it's foolishness. It's foolishness because just like Joshua, men will die. They don't have the power to deliver you. They don't have the power to extend their lives, let alone your life. Even if they don't die, they are incredibly fickle. They can change their minds from one time to another. God is both strong and stubborn in his consistency. He just refuses to be inconsistent. He tells you who he is and he stays that way forever. It's interesting that here he comes to Joshua in his weakness and he says, you are old and advanced in years and God is known as the one who is ancient of days. He is also old and advanced in years, but unlike men, he doesn't grow weak. He is always strong. He is always powerful. He is always capable. Nothing happens that can ever sway God one way or the next from fulfilling his power and his purposes. In the great battle between the prophets of Baal and Elijah, Elijah has built his tower of wood and they've built theirs and they're going to make it rain fire from heaven to see which God will light this wood first. And all of the prophets come out and they're dancing around their wood pile. They are trying to get Baal to do anything they can to light and Elijah, in 1 Kings 18, says these words, At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And never once did that pyre light. He says, maybe your God is indisposed. Maybe he is busy with something and he can't answer the phone. Maybe he went on a long journey and he's too far away and he can't hear you. Maybe he had to lie down because he's too tired. And all of this he's saying, my God is none of those things. My God is powerful. 
He is never too busy. He's never too occupied. He never rests. He never sleeps. He never diminishes in his power or in his ability to accomplish what he wants. Our God is a powerful God. Fourth, our God is a painstaking God. Turn to the 18th chapter and begin reading with me in verse 8. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land, and write a description and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua, to the camp at Shiloh, And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. This is exactly, by the way, what God had commanded him to do. You are to go out. The land has been given to the people. Now it's your task, Joshua, to allot it to the tribes. Some of the tribes have already gotten theirs. The two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan have already gotten theirs. But the rest of them need to have it proportioned out to them. And with the exception of a couple stories here or there, all of the chapters in between what we read in Joshua 13 to the end of Joshua 19 is nothing but the allotment of the land. And much of it sounds like this beginning in verse 11. The lot of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to its clans, came up, and the territory allotted to it fell between the people of Judah and the people of Joseph. On the north side, their boundary began at the Jordan. Then the boundary goes up to the shoulder north of Jericho, then up through the hill country westward. It ends at the wilderness of Beth-Avon. From there, the boundary passes along southward in the direction of Lutz, to the shoulder of Lutz, that is Bethel. Then the boundary goes down to Ataroth Adder, on the mountain that lies south of lower Beth Horan. Then the boundary goes in another direction, turning on the western side southward from the mountain that lies to the south, opposite Beth Horan, and it ends at Kiriath Baal, that is Kiriath Jerem, a city belonging to the people of Judah. This forms the western side. And the southern side begins at the outskirts of Kiriath Jerem. And the boundary goes from there to Ephron, to the springs of the waters of Nephtoah. Then the boundary goes down to the border of the mountain that overlooks the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is at the north end of the valley of Rephaim. And it then goes down to the valley of Hinnom, south of the shoulder of the Jebusites, and downward to Enrogel. Then it bends in a northerly direction, going on toward En Shemesh, and from there to Gelioth, which is opposite the ascent of Adunam. It then goes down to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben, and passing on to the north of the shoulder of Beth Arabah, it goes down to the Arabah. Then the boundary passes on the north of the shoulder of Beth Hagla, and the boundary ends at the northern bay of the Salt Sea. At the south end of the Jordan, this is the southern border. The Jordan forms its boundary on the eastern side. This is the inheritance of the people of Benjamin, according to their clans, boundary by boundary, all around. That is enticing if you are a map maker. And that is enticing if you have a stake in the political, the social, or the legal implications of living in Israel at that time. It's important because if you're a Benjamite, that says where you can live and where you can't. You don't get to go outside of your own tribe. So that is where you get to live. It's important for those reasons. 
But man, if you begin to read through this portion of Joshua, you can get bogged down in this. But it's not tedious. Listen, this is a sign of God's intricate and meticulous love for his people. He loves his people down to the very particulars of their life. As a father, sometimes when your kids are arguing or bickering or they run into trouble, they come to you and they say, hey, this happened or she said this or this spilled, I need help cleaning it up. And quite often as a parent, your good godly response is, figure it out, yo. Like, you need to be responsible to do something here. In five years, you're going out of the house, all of you. And when that happens, you need to be self-sufficient for all things, right? So we are trying to make fully functioning little adults here. And that means that they're going to have to do some sort of problem solving in their life. It means that they're going to have to figure out how to work with other people without having their parents step in. And you know, anyone who has ever worked with other people, you know that people lack this skill. They go to their bosses for every little problem and they say, I don't know what to do here. And as a boss or as a coworker, you say, dude, figure it out. There's a time and a place for that. Those are not bad responses, but they're not always good responses. There are plenty of times when my kids come to me and they ask me for my help and my response is go figure it out because I don't want to get up. Because I don't want to lend a hand. God is not like that. God is meticulous in his love for people. Not on a broad general scale that he has made a way for you to be reconciled in Christ, but he loves you in every little facet of your life. He knows all of the things that happen to you. You have kept count of my tossings. Psalm 58, 6, 8 reads, You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows when you lay in bed and you are anxious for things, how you turn. He knows those things and he records them in his memory. He keeps your tears in bottles because he loves you. He knows everything that's ever gone wrong in your life, every worry and anxiety that you have ever had. He has a record of those things because he wants to know what has made you anxious, because he wants to know and cares about every little thing that happens to you. Our God is painstaking in his love. If God being a powerful God means that we can always approach him in prayer knowing that God will act and that when he acts, he is powerful to do it, this reminds us that no request is too small for God. While you can go to God and while we should go to God and pray for things of gravity, pray for things of greatness, we should pray for Christ's name to be known in all the world, for the kingdom of God to spread to all things. Don't ever, ever think that God is too busy or that God cares so little about the little everyday things in your life that you can't look at him and say, God, I would really like to find my keys. He cares about all of it. Every blessed bit. Our God is not too great to condescend to the smallest need you have. Each of these locations, from a stone here to a, a holler there, up to the mountains and down past the rivers and around that other place with the thing and the place and the bees, right? So all of that, God says, 
I care about it. He's recorded it forever in his word because he cares about his people. He cares about the boundaries that they have in their lives. Things that we think are inconsequential are clearly important to God. And it shows that he is painstaking in his love for us. Finally, God is a protecting God. The beginning of Joshua chapter 20 reads like this. The Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give him up to the man they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and to his own home, to the town from which he fled. We've already heard about this in the beginning of Deuteronomy. Moses talks about the fact that these cities were set up. One of the most important things that they did immediately was set up these refuges because God knew before people ever lived there, he knew that accidents were going to happen. He knew that axe heads were going to fly off and kill other people. He knew that things would happen by accident. A bull would get out and they would gore someone to death. He knew that this kind of stuff would happen. So immediately upon settling this land, he says, you are to appoint cities so that there is not blood upon blood upon blood upon blood that's let out. He doesn't want Hatfields and McCoys. He doesn't want Montagues and Capulets. God wants his people to dwell in unity. And so that there's not a blood feud going back and forth. If there's an accident that happens, this man is to escape into a town. But this isn't like time out and tag, okay? This isn't a safe place where you can kill somebody and run away there. You have to be innocent of the charges that are brought against you. You couldn't have hated the man in the past. And you have to explain yourself to the city before the city takes you in. This isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you can race after you kill somebody to the city, get there, and then free. That's not what it means. But God is providing for his people by protecting them. He protects the person who has accidentally killed his neighbor. What is more than that? God had the foresight of withholding from a tribe an inheritance in the land. And instead what he does with the people of Levi, with the priests, is instead of giving them one section where all the priests would live, one isolated landlocked place, he spreads them like seed throughout the kingdom of Israel. Chapter 21 reads this. Then the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And on and on it goes. Each region of Israel has cities where Levi's sons will live and stay. And scattered throughout all of Israel are the keepers of the law. 
those who will keep peace between man and man and are there to keep peace between God and man. Those who will adjudicate when man comes with a claim against another man and those who will adjudicate before God and make sacrifices before God and offer up incense before God for the, for the best of the people. God scatters them all throughout because he knows that his people will need protecting from themselves and from him. Our God is a protecting God. He watches over us. We know because Jesus told us to ask for that in prayer to protect us from the evil one. God provides for us protection. If nothing else, the greatest protection that he has given to us is that of Jesus Christ who protects us, not from Satan, not from man, not from boulders, not from crevices, not from all of the evils that this world can throw at us, but Jesus Christ protects us from his Father. And he has taken on the wrath of God for us. God is a protecting God. All of this is exceedingly good news for the Israelites. They, they have a God who is all-powerful, who cares for them meticulously, loves them, provides promises for them, and then walks them through those promises, is there to help them in all of that. He is unstoppable in his purposes, majestic in his means, and loving in all of his plans. But let us not forget for a second that these promises, these plans, and all of this good has a flip side to it. And that is, it is only there because the blood is now running thick through the land of Canaan. All these promises are good because Canaanites lay slaughtered everywhere. These promises meant not only that Israel was to take the land, which is unmitigatedly good for Israel, but that the Canaanites were to be destroyed off of it. In other words, these promises are not for every person. They were good and they were true for Israel because God fought for them against their enemies. But it is not good for the Canaanites. We are reminded that while God is God of all people, he is only father to some. We are reminded today that God's promises are part of his word and therefore they are double-edged. They give life and breath and salvation to those who run to him they are disaster, death and punishment to any who would stand against him. So friends, let us not stand in our sin against this God. He's already made a way, if you do not know him, for you to be forgiven today. He has already provided forgiveness and hope for you, even before you ever thought to ask for it. He is able to save you from the deepest depths of despair and sin and pride. He has provided for all of your needs and wants and stands ready to protect you against all of your enemies. All of these things are true in Christ, who before the world began was prepared to lay down his life, to become incarnate in a man, to lay down his life for those whom he would count as brothers and sisters in the Lord and to provide for them all that they need for life and breath and all good things. He died for our sins and was raised in power. He himself, by his work on the cross, can take away all of your sins, make you white and new again, but only if you confess him. Only if you know truly today what that love is. Run to him and confess your sin to him and turn from it. 
Hopefully for some of you, this would be the first taste of the love of God. For many of us, this is old hat, but it's never old. It's beautiful and it's wonderful because we know this God. This God is not some sort of abstract reality for us. This is a God that we know personally. So it is sweet to come into the house of the Lord, to worship him, to proclaim his goodness throughout all of the trials and tribulations that we might go through. We will say his will be done on earth as it is in heaven because he is good, always good. John writes this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The promises of God speak of the character of God. Jesus Christ has revealed that character to its utmost. Find your life in him today anew again, for he is strong and mighty and he will not cast you out. Let us pray. Father God, you are indeed good to us in all ways, in ways that we cannot think to even recognize. You have been good to us in things that we don't even notice daily. You are good to us, but Father, you are good to us supremely in the work of Jesus Christ, your Son. And it is that above all things that we will proclaim from the rooftops that we dwell in your house only because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that in your kindness to us, you might be kind to others. In your mercy for us, you might show yourself merciful to many others, that your word might go out into the world and that people might be saved, that they might be spared the fate of the Canaanites and they might find themselves in the place of Rahab, just as we have There were none of us who were good before your sight. None of us were holy. You have called sinners to know you. You are a good God. Show yourself to be merciful and kind today. Save your people. We pray for these mighty and magnificent things because they are promises that you have given so that you will be shown glorious in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.